I'll start maybe with a little uh, story of the Buddha's awakening, or at least the time immediately after. The first person that the Buddha met, so we have to filter through the mythology of the story. But uh, it seems like the Buddha spent seven weeks uh, after the, the night of awakening under the tree, kind of digesting, clarifying the way he'd understood life to be. And after those seven weeks of digesting and clarifying, he decided to go off and find the friends that he had formerly practiced with to speak with them. His first thought was, it's not worth it. It's, it's, uh, he couldn't find a language or he didn't have the faith that people would be able to understand him. And then, on reflecting more, he decided to go and find these five friends. And on the way, he met the first person that he'd seen, I guess, for those seven weeks. At least that's the way the story comes to us. And the person was struck by the, by the Buddha's radiant countenance. And the person said, wow, what are you? Are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a... I can't remember actually all the categories of questions. The story falls down a little bit here. You know, <laughs> the person asked the Buddha these various questions. Are you a god? Are you a, a great saint? No. Are you a celestial being? No. Are you a human being? No. The last one stumped the person. I said, what are you then? And the Buddha said, awake. And the word for awake in Pali, which is the word, the, the language the Buddha spoke, is bud. Bud. Little did he know that he was going to start a whole awake-ism. But it's nevertheless interesting to reflect that Buddhism, and you might just see for yourself what you understand when you hear the word Buddhism, if we just stay a bit close to the original, what it really means is awakism. Or awakening. The love of awakening. The quest for awakening. The exploration of awakening. The following one's clear inner conviction and knowing that there's an awake way to live. A free way to live. It's also interesting in this little story that when the Buddha said that, what are you? Awake. The person said, okay. Okay. And disappeared quick. So the Buddha's first attempt at teaching someone didn't go too well. 
That's how the Buddha explained it. The guy thought he was a weirdo, basically. A wank. Okay. So, one of the lessons from that is that one has to really take care. Because, to a certain extent, we're trying to do something rather impossible. We're trying to filter something. Uh, you see, even there I got lost with the word something. We're trying to filter life's freeness through the paucity of the human mind and the tendency of the human mind to rely on concepts. The tendency of the human mind, inevitably, to rely on filtering experience through what I already know. Right? You can't experience something without experiencing it. Now that sounds weird, but it's like the example I often give. You can't, uh, you can't imagine accurately the taste of a fruit you've never tasted. If I held up an orange and I said, hey, imagine what this tastes like, you'd have a pretty good idea because you already had that experience. But if I held up a fruit you'd never seen, never tasted and say, imagine what this tastes like. You could imagine, because you've had some fruits, but your imagining would necessarily be vague, inaccurate, or completely wrong. Right? So we have to take care that to recognize that if, to the extent that we try to um, deal with consider awakening in light of our existing concepts and ideas, to that extent they'll probably be a bit off. A bit vague, a bit inaccurate, or completely wrong. So let's try anyway. I really appreciated your questions. Sometimes I've sensed a certain reticence during the week to ask questions in the hall. So I wondered, I came along, I thought maybe there'd just be one or two. <laughs> no. You've been saving them all up for uh, paper. And I won't, I won't manage to answer all of them. And I think that's okay because a lot of them uh, interweave with each other. But I, I really appreciated the questions that you asked. And the, you know, often I thought, wow, the, the depth of reflection and the depth of contemplation that's alive in the question actually is what's most important here. More so than an answer that I may be able to give. So that's a good get-out clause for me. But it's also the sense, if you feel like your question doesn't get answered, don't worry, the answer is always going to be um, secondary to the way the question might be alive in you. And some of the questions about the nature of awareness and the, the way the questions were formed, it's very clear that there's a depth of contemplation, a depth of considering happening. So wonderful.
keep that alive. So we'll we'll start with Le Grand Classique. Are you awakened? <laughs> I like this question. <laughs> and I get asked it disappointingly rarely. Because that was always my question. That was my question for my teachers. And mostly it was because I wanted, I wanted someone, somewhere, to say yes. I wanted to anchor my faith in someone saying yes. And I somehow wanted a forum to build a lot of judgments on as well. Because if you say yes, whoever the you was, then what about that that you do and that that you seem to be like? <laughs> and, that, and, that. and yet, so yes was, seemed like it would be, you know, there wasn't anyone that I was really sure they would be able to say yes. But there was also, I could hear the truth, and I could hear the clarity, and I could feel the, the aliveness of their, own, their practice and the love of the truth and depth. So I didn't want to hear them say no either. And that's in many ways the most authentic way to answer that question, right? It's, it's one betrays the question by saying yes or no. If I say yes, then, then self is claiming something that can't possibly belong to it. Self doesn't awaken from its obsessions. Right? We awaken from the obsession of self. Self doesn't awaken from its graspings. What wakes up, what frees up, is the, the, the grasping to self. Self gets awakened from, is awakened from. Hence the important reluctance generally, for someone to say yes. And I would be very suspicious of anybody that lays claim in that way. And yet, if I say no, then there's a denial of that which is obviously free here. There's a denial of the way life is awake to itself and the way that awakeness knows the free unfolding of things. And one might sense something of the ambiguous and the free nature of awakening. Free from being claimed or denied by the one who would say yes and get it, getting stuck on awakening 
or would say no, making a distance from awakening. Question's not finished. (laughs) What is the difference between an awakened and a non-awakened being? something else I wanted to say there it's just gone really gone What's the difference between an awakened and a non-awakened being? The two synonyms that Buddha used most often, one, Buddha awakening, and the other, Vimuti, freedom, freedom of being, the freeness of things. Oh yes, now I remember. Okay, good. Good. So it seems to I'm just going to go, we'll come back to that. So in terms of this, this question that seems like a binary, are you awakened? The reluctance to say yes, the reluctance to say no. I, I think then we need to ask the question in a different way. And I was, just, I was reflecting on this earlier, which is why I wanted to say something now I couldn't remember. So how would I ask the question? And actually it comes to what I think are a series of questions. So if I ask myself this series of questions that seems a pertinent way to frame that. Is the awake nature of awareness utterly clear and the free nature of the way life unfolds within that awake knowing, completely clear. Yes. <laughs> Is the awakeness of awareness... Oh, no, I'm saying it in English again. <laughs> okay. Is the awakeness of awareness completely clear... And the fact that life's movement is free and that the awakeness of awareness knows that freedom. Is that completely clear? Yes. Second, there's three parts to the question. Second part. Does that mean that nothing ever obscures 
that awakeness. That self-preoccupation doesn't arise. And that the, the clear knowing of the freeness of life can't ever get lost. Uh, I might amend that. Uh, no. <laughs> There's different ways that the arising of the self-sense can happen. One is that it can just be seen as part of that freeness. There's a personality here. Right? Personality has biological movements and drives. Personality has a psychology to it. Personality has preferences to it. Personality has creativity. Right? So personality, the sense of self, can arise as part of life's free expression. Right? Life's free expression out there is called bamboo and evening light. Life's free expression here is called personality doing its Martin thing. And sometimes personality can arise with some grab to it, with some uh, unclarified part of the psychology. Some aspect of psychology that hasn't been seen completely clearly in how it's patterned. And then it can arise with a kind of, with a sort of tunnel vision. That where the, the sense of life's freedom sort of recedes. Where the awakeness that knows life's freedom gets, uh, gets overlooked. It's not that it's absent, but it gets overlooked. The, the awakeness of knowing is overlooked. I don't notice that awareness is just abiding because the interest that the personality has taken, born of some unresolved psychology, overlooks the awareness. It identifies with the object that personality's got involved with. As, as the psychology gets more and more clarified, it becomes more and more obvious that when that happens, that it's a, it's a bit of an aberration. It becomes more and more obvious that something's a bit wrong here. Right? It becomes more and more obvious that the light of awareness is dimming. The freeness of life has, is giving the illusion of not being so free. And therefore, one gets more and more alerted, more and more easily alerted to when that can arise. Third part of the question. Does that imply... Getting somewhere where no more unresolved psychology arises, where the freeness of life is so completely, unshakably clear that nothing unclarified can arise within it. 
I don't know. I don't know. A lot of teachings suggest yes, but I don't think so. But my best guess is I don't think so. Or at least the nature of awareness and the nature of life's freeness suggest yes, but the, that clarifying of psychology seems to be an infinite process. Human consciousness is infinitely open upable. <laughs> And when I've asked friends and colleagues and teachers about that, I've always felt distrustful of any kind of claim of finality. And the one or two people who seem to me to be the, the most clarified that I know in their psychology, the most transparent, not only feel the same way that that's a, a, an infinite trajectory, but also like the person who I m trust most in the world around this stuff, that person feels like they have also never met anybody who would lay claim to that finality. So, because we tend to think in terms of yeses or noes, with that third don't know, the don't know isn't actually an absence of knowing yes or knowing no. It's the authentic response. I don't know. I don't know where this freeness of life is leading to. I don't know anything about an end point to it. I don't know what else there might be that can get clarified and explored. All I do know is the more closely I look, the more I notice. The more I notice, the more insight there is. And the more insight there is, the more things free up. And the more things free up, the more that confirms life's freeness. And the more that freeness is confirmed, the more the awakeness that knows it stands out in its truth and its brightness. Let's the first question. <laughs> We're still on, now there's part two of the first question. What's the difference between awakened being and non-awakened being? The difference isn't necessarily about that clarification of psychology. There easily is the view, one view or the other. One view is... I have to clarify all my psychology. And when all my psychology is clarified, then that will be called awakening. 
Right? I would, that, I would say, is one wrong view, one unhelpful view, because the clarifying of psychology seems to be infinite. Other view is, oh my God, psychology, all that is just the stuff of self. We don't like that. We are into Buddhism. We just need to wake up. <laughs> and it's the reverse process. Instead of clarifying all the psychology, which will lead to awakening, then the other view is, if I, can, if I just wake up, life's free, awareness is awake, then that awakening will clarify all my psychology. I, it would be great <laughs> if that were true. But how many pretty awake, pretty, pretty awake beings are there who have some pretty unclarified psychology going on? Right? How much mess is there been? in Buddhism, in spiritual traditions generally, where the, where, and it doesn't invalidate the awakeness, it doesn't invalidate the realisation, but the psychology definitely hasn't been clarified, and then it comes out through sexual impropriety, through manipulation, through misuse of power and money and all the crap that if you stay around Buddhism or any other spiritual scene for long enough, you end up wading through. <laughs> the, the awakeness that's more and more obvious, the freedom of life's unfolding, gives this, the, the, makes it different to explore one's psychology. Rather than exploring one's psychology so that it will lead to some freedom, or with the hope that it will lead to some freedom, rather there's the freedom to explore what's here. Freedom to explore whatever psychology shows up. So that's one difference. And the other major difference seems to be that rather than our attention unawakened attention tends to gravitate around the story of self. Unawakened attention basically feels like a property of self. It feels like my attention, my mind, my awareness, my feelings. So that's where attention gravitates to. My thoughts and my feelings and my history and my wishes and my future and my relationships, and my problems. Whereas awakened attention, knowing that freeness of life, the open freeness of life, there's a lot more space in which attention can settle. And the stuff of the personal life is a much smaller detail. It's just one thing among what's happening. And where the attention mostly tends to gravitate to tends to be the certain qualities of life. What the Buddha referred to as the tars, 
yana bhutata means the here and nowness of life. The fact that life is immediate is right now. The fact that there's no other moment, no other place. That here and nowness is like, oh, attention trusts that. Rests in that, gravitates to that. Like it find it like it like the compass of awakened attention sort of swings to the here and nowness. It swings to the just like thisness, right? the ambiguity that we've spoken of through the week. Rather than having to make things black or white, the attention's happy to land in, to hold, to, to embrace ambiguity. And also the naturalness of things, the fact that things have their own nature, that everything unfolds according to nature, according to its nature. So that difference, the fact that attention gravitates to the here and now, becomes a great protection from the mind um, constructing a drama of, around ideas of past and future. The fact that attention gravitates to the just like thisness is a great protection against the mind forming fixed views of how things are. And the fact that the attention gravitates to the naturalness, the orderliness isn't quite the right word, but yeah, the, the, the naturalness of things is a great protection from the, from the mind getting stuck in trying to control and fix and organize and make things accord with my wishes. I said I wouldn't answer them all, but in a way, you know, there's a lot in that question. Does this is one of the questions where I said the, the depth of contemplation in the question is what's important. So I'm going to read the question, though I might not answer it. Does love itself equal awareness itself? I would say yes, but what good is yes? Right? But follow that, that sense you have. Love and awareness as synonymous. We might use the language of one or the language of the other. We talk about awareness as contact, curiosity, care. But that also, that sounds like love, right? Love is contactful, intimate. Love is curious, wants to get more inside what's happening. Love cares, embraces. Allows. So, just to, to let the question of that really mijot marinate. So that the way the question comes alive, yes or no, becomes irrelevant. 
but the way we meet our experience, we might sometimes meet it through the lens of what we call awareness of, or we might meet it through the lens of what we call love. But the meeting will be informed by those qualities that could equally be called love or awareness. Then the question goes on, very good. Are awareness and love existing independent of the object-subject of awareness and love? (laughs) Fantastic. Do I only feel love or sense awareness when there is something to love or be aware of? Excellent question. Really, let that stay alive. Nothing I could say could make anything like as much difference as you wrestling with the impossibility of answering that question. I remember asking almost word for word that same question myself. If awakening happens, I suppose it's just for a moment. Maybe a few minutes, maybe a few days. How can we do not be attempted to hold on to it? How can we not be attached to it? Sounds like the questioner is equating awakening with an experience. We may have experiences that reveal life's freedom. We may have experiences that show us the, wake, the, the wide awakeness of consciousness. The experience, of course, like the person says, is just for a moment. A shorter moment or a longer moment. The experience has to change. Everything changes. Experiences change. Let the experience change. It couldn't do anything else. What it's pointing to, what the experience shows you or reveals to you about life's freeness is what's important in it. But because we like the experience, oh my God, this amazing experience, and I'm free in a way. It's like getting a great gift, right, in a beautifully packaged box. The gift is the insight of life's freeness. But the box is so pretty that after I've looked, wow, look what's in the box, it's beautiful. Then I forget about what's inside and I just remember what lovely wrapping the box has. I wish I had the box again. Right? The experience reveals the insights in the way that the box reveals the gift. Don't get hung up on the wrapping paper. Let the, the insight of your deepest experiences guide the inner compass of your heart towards that knowing, towards that freeness, towards that truth, without trying to repeat any experience. It's gone. What is there in your bag? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like 
like one of those pop star questions. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I used to read those interviews with pop stars. And they would, what have you got in your pockets? And they always had really rock and roll things in their pockets. You know, like, oh, tuning fork, some Rizzler papers, and a condom. <laughs> So it's not so rock and roll, but it's quite Buddhist. A mala and a gamcha. Right. A gamcha is a is an Indian towel. Is awakening the same as enlightenment? If yes. Is it already there for everybody in the now if we just noticed it? So maybe I partially responded to this. I, t I like, I prefer the word awakening to the word enlightenment because mostly it's a... C'est quoi les deux mots en français? Yeah, but it's difficult. Because the thing is, in English, the reason I prefer it is because the awakening is in the present continuous grammatical form. Awakening, awakening. Awakening is, is here. Awakening doesn't suggest an end. Right? Awakening suggests an infinite trajectory. And it also suggests immediacy. Enlightenment. <laughs> it suggests something far off and it suggests something static which is very disingenuous wrong <laughs> one seeks to allow disturbing thoughts and the emotional tightness that accompanies them, to just be allowed and included in awareness without engaging with them. On cherche à inclure les pensées euh, dans l'attention, dans la conscience, et euh, la, les, les serrures émotionnelles qui accompagnent ces pensées, de les inclure dans la conscience sans les engager. Sorry, I just translated it. Yeah. I can see that this reduces suffering. But it seems that some patterns tend to then arise less frequently or intensely or diminish. But other patterns don't diminish. If you agree that there is a distinction... Can you talk about this difference? Is there a category of worries, concerns, obsessions that are not reduced through mindfulness practice? I wouldn't say that there's a category of worries, concerns and obsessions. But I would say like the person's pointing out, that some, thi some things in the 
just giving them space and awareness, they unfold and open and they free up. And sometimes they free up so clearly in the moment of knowing their nature that there's an, a genuine, absolute clarity that that's gone. And then experience bears it out. That that thing that used to trouble me, worry me, obsess me, just got no power anymore. It's been seen through. It's been really dropped. Other things, it's a similar process, except they lose their power, but, oh, but they come back again. And they need a little more vigilance. As, and to be seen in the same way again and again, and they diminish and lose their power. And other things, for whatever reason, don't seem to get resolved just by sitting silently with them, for most people. I wouldn't be so bold as to say they don't. Maybe, you know, spend 50 years sitting silently with them, and then let's see, maybe they'll have dissolved. But it seems to be that some things, and particularly early relational <coughs> patterning, particularly early traumatic relational patterning, but not even necessarily traumatic, but the stuff that was set up very early on in our, in our conditioning in relation to early figures, parents mostly, siblings as well, it seems to be that particularly when one knows that there's a, a painful or disruptive influence from that early stuff, that sometimes that's best, the way it got formed relationally, it's best worked with relationally. Whether that means working with it with a teacher or in a psychotherapeutic session setting or in some other modality, body work, for example. So I think what's important is to not just because one might fall in love with this practice and see its great benefit, but you don't have to make it a panacea. It doesn't have to be the answer to everything. There's a lot of, there's a lot of very good inner technologies. This practice is a really great inner technology. It doesn't have to be the only one. Sometimes we want to make it the... the the whole thing, the best thing, the only thing, as a way to shore up our confidence and faith in it. But if you have the sense that some things, after some years of this practice, that there are some things, I definitely had that after 10 or 12 years of this practice, I felt like, wow, things had completely transformed so much, and yet... That things were completely transformed and free until I went to stay with my parents for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. right. For example. So if one has a sense that after some years there are areas of my, one's life that haven't really gotten touched or transformed, then it might be really worth seeking out some other way of working with those things. Okay, last one.
Do you need to be aware to be happy? Depends what you mean by happiness. Right? Can be happy eating cake. So, really, I like cake. So there's a, there's a distinction. It's like you know, mostly we get what we get to know as happiness, just. What, the, what an ordinary person, an untrained person, somebody who hasn't really explored and opened up life, what we know as happiness tends to be consumptive gratification. Yeah. I'm happy because I've got this. I'm happy because, yeah, of something I've got or something I've become or something I've attained right? it's a kind of consumptive happiness you know you don't need to be aware to enjoy in that way but it's you know it's fleeting it's a kind of low grade happiness nothing wrong with it but it's a low grade happiness and the more the more refined expressions of happiness which are by their nature uh, not dependent on having or getting something. They're the happiness of spacious abiding, the happiness of uh, uh, peaceful abiding, the happiness of vast abiding, the happiness of infinite abiding, the happiness of being in contact with what's true, even if I don't like what's happening. What's happening might be unpleasant, but if I'm completely aligned in meeting it, even meeting it in its unpleasantness, that alignment is a source of a very deep kind of satisfaction. The satisfaction of being in truthful contact. But don't take my word for it. So, I hope these reflections are in the service of really paying attention to this extraordinary thing called being alive. Unplanned, unorganized, and yet right here. That these reflections can be of service in exploring the mystery, the mysteriousness of this. In the service of waking up to life's free nature as it plays itself out around us, within us, and as us. And whatever goodness, whatever freeness, whatever awakeness arises out of these reflections, 
May it be dedicated to the awakeness and freeness of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.